Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hey, this is Andrew Olson, host of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Melissa Brown, who's the principal of Melissa S. Brown & Associates, a research firm that conducts research about and for nonprofit organizations, and someone who I've met over the last couple of months and come to have a deep respect for. Melissa, it's great to have you here today. Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm thrilled to be here. So I am really excited to, to get into the meat of our conversation, which is going to be on trends and research and your insights on the sector. Before I do that, I would love for you to just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and a little bit about your firm. Sure, I'd be happy to. Melissa Brown and Associates formed in 2010, so I'm just entering my 10th year of business, uh, which is pretty, uh, pretty exciting. Congratulations. I, uh, yeah, thank you. I worked on Giving USA for 10 years. I did the background research for that and made a lot of great connections around the country and learned a lot about data analysis and also about interpreting stories. Uh, qualitative data analysis, it's called. So in my company, we do that. We analyze data for and about nonprofits. And we also, when we set up studies to do that, we analyze other people's data for them. And we also do interviews around the country or collect stories from people and then try to synthesize that into a sort of trend platform. And I have several projects going on now. I can talk about them later if you're interested. We'll talk um, about one that we're working on together, in fact. We so, can yes. talk about that. Yes, that's actually one of the most exciting things happening right now. We also do training. I do training all over the country, okay. largely for the fundraising school, but I recently affiliated with another group called the Eight Principles. They're located in Boise, Idaho, and I'm really excited about this opportunity. The Eight Principles is really about building a culture of philanthropy organization-wide, from the board to the newest staff hire and creating a common understanding of how philanthropy works, the fundamentals, the motivations of donors to help nonprofits meet their mission and how to bring those two together and do so in a productive way. So I'm really looking forward to developing that further with, with the folks out in Boise at The Eight Principles. That's awesome. I actually just had Larry on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, Larry Johnson of The Eight Principles. So I think it's great that you're involved with that. And I, I think uh, the foundational work of building that culture of philanthropy is so difficult for so many organizations that it's something that we, we desperately need in the sector. Yeah, we all know it in our private yeah. lives. I only give to things I really care about. Right. But we don't know to how to cultivate that within our organizations so that our donors understand why and how exactly. yeah. they can help us meet our missions. Hmm. So, so let's get into this. I am really curious to, to get your read overall on the, the fundraising landscape right now. What are you, what are you seeing What's exciting you? What's concerning you? Okay. Well, there's a lot concerning me, but there are okay. still some, some uh, methods, some, some uh, attributes that are exciting me. So Jeff Bezos' gift, I mean, yes. 10 billion, you know, that's a pretty significant chunk of his net worth, even though his net worth, he's the richest, most wealthy man in the United States. He has made a significant commitment to funding under our understanding and reaction to climate change. He's just done that in the last day or so. That kind of leadership giving is pushing philanthropy ahead in this country. <laughs> when we look at Giving USA data, I still um, help present that data across the country. We see that high net worth giving is well over 40% of the total. That's, you know, Warren and Bill. That's, I mean, sorry, Bill and, <laughs> Bill and Melinda, Warren Buffett, Jeff and his cohort, all the people at Google. Those high net worth people 
are really driving the total that's given. And one of my concerns, I mean, that's great. That's great if you really care about some of the things that they're involved in. But if you're working at the YMCA down the street or the food pantry in your neighborhood or, God forbid, the hospice or uh, another cause like that in your community, you might be having a hard time. And that's because smaller donors, myself, my brother, my cousins, my, my kids say, wow, those big, big, rich people, they're giving all the money away. How can my $25 make a difference? And we, we fail to recognize the power of numbers if all of us gave. Man, each one of those $25 would make a huge difference. We could double the amount of philanthropy if we each gave up one pricey cup of coffee a month. Hmm. It's hard to think about, but it's really true. If every single adult in this country gave up one, say, $5 cup of coffee and gave it to charity instead, think of the power that would have. Yeah, it'd be huge. So I see that I mean, if they gave it to the YMCA or the hospice or the food pantry or whatever cause was close to them that they, that they really were impassioned about, it would transform how our communities work. We don't have to leave it to the really, really wealthy who are driving it now. So a follow-up on that with respect to the really high net worth individuals, because I've heard this a couple of times recently and seen it in some data that we were analyzing as well, where it looks like in most organizations – those who are giving, say, $1,000 or more are really carrying the load, right? And that's been true since before I was born. And I'm, okay. I've got gray hair all that, over. <laughs> that's good because it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because I, I hear a lot of people talk about that like it's a new phenomenon. The, the new phenomenon is the super, the ultra high net worth who okay. are creating entire, like the Global Institute on Vaccinations or gotcha. the Broad Institute on Brain Research at Harvard. That's okay. the new thing where people have so much money that they can fund a single initiative all on their own. The phenomenon of having uh, the uh, people who are able to give a significant amount in their own community actually carrying the majority of the load. That's that. Goes, I mean, the, I teach for the fundraising school, and that they started in 1974. So um, I was already born in 1974, but <laughs> 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 but that phenomenon, the 80/20 rule, the Pareto uh, principle, was enforced. Uh, that far back, at least we can document it that far back, okay. probably further than that. So, so I'm curious to get your point of view on this because I feel like there are a handful of organizations that do really well at engaging high net worth uh, philanthropists. And when I say that, I'm thinking higher education, some oh, yeah. healthcare advancement operations mm -hmm. and, and, and some others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there are a whole lot who, if, you know, if their financial lives depended on it, simply don't know how to talk to people of wealth who have a fear or a, a lack of understanding or just a, a general uncertainty about how to even start those conversations and engage with those donors. But if 80% of the revenue is coming from those donors, it, it seems to me like it ought to be a high priority to learn those skills and to develop that technique, right? Absolutely. And one of the big challenges, a lot of those organizations that you and I care about a lot about are in the social services sector. They are hospice, they are YMCAs and food pantries and child development programs. And in that case, we are asking high net worth donors to care about people with whom they might not have daily contact. Hmm. When they go to an art museum or to hospital or to a higher education institute, they are themselves receiving the services and they can see it, feel it, hear it, experience the mission in a very living way. Because they're there, and they're there as, part, as one of the clients, if you will. 
Well, they're not going to go to a homeless shelter and experience life as a homeless person unless we give them opportunities to see, feel, hear, smell, sometimes touch the reality of the lives that we're changing. So there are organizations that are doing this in a very effective way. There's a program called the Poverty Experience, for example. It's something that's been replicated around the country. It's a, you get invited on a personalized basis. I mean, it's a small number of people at a time, maybe a dozen people at a time. And in a couple hours, they are challenged to try to figure out how to deal with day-to-day crises mm. that somebody who lives below the poverty line would have to cope with. And they come out of those sessions completely transformed in their understanding of what poverty means and what it li- means in this country to live below below that uh, income line that's defined as poverty. So that's one way that organizations can reach beyond that sort of chasm that you just described and help people of higher net worth live in a very brief way the experience of, of the people for whom a $1,000 gift could be transformational. Hmm. It's so interesting to me. It really is that proximity piece, right? Oh, Where it's, yeah. You know, I, maybe I can't, I don't know that it's a, an urgent enough issue that I need to make an investment in it if I've never had to live with it, right? Right. I worked with a hospital that um, did a study of uh, their volunteering program. So it's a nonprofit employer, okay. but they provided volunteer experiences for their employees outside of their hospital, so elsewhere in the community. Mm-hmm. And we, we surveyed all the organizations where the employees had volunteered, and we surveyed some of the employees to try to find out the benefit, you know, how, how to run this program better. And one of the things that all the charities said to me was that the having people come in and experience the mission on site led some of those hospital employees to become donors to that particular charitable organization, whether it was a transitional housing program for people who had been homeless, whether it was a youth development program for people in a lower income community, you get the idea. Yeah. Being, being able to experience the, the mission on site was very important. That's a challenge for us because it takes time. It, it is. takes personnel and time to set up those experiences. And we are typically not structured to do that as nonprofits. Not at all. And I think the other thing is it, it takes a willingness to be vulnerable, right? To bring people you know, who you might not know well inside, kind of behind the curtain, to maybe see that not everything's perfect, right? And I think that that feels risky for a lot of people, don't you? I do. But you know, when you ask for advice, money follows. Huh. It's this, and this Say is more a, about that. Yeah. If you ask people for money, they're like, oh, I don't know. You know, I'm not quite sure what you're going to do with it. Uh. But if you say, <laughs> hey, we have this challenge. In Indianapolis, there are 4,000 people who are homeless on any given night. And in the middle of summer, those people are thirsty because it's hot and humid. We have a challenge about how to deliver water to those people. Would you help us figure out how to do that? Mm. And we don't take people down and under the bridges. You know, people are not exhibits in a zoo. Right. We don't want to, you know, display the extent of the people essentially at home under a bridge. But we want to help figure out how to deliver water. So that gives people, oh, yeah, I can think of this. And I'll bring in my friend and I'll talk to the people at the grocery store down the street. And we'll talk to the women's auxiliary of one of the AME churches and we'll figure out how to get bottled water and then figure out how to trend. And then all of a sudden they're invested in the process. Hmm. They're invested in the solution and they become invested in the people who are being served the water. And then they become donors. That makes good sense. That's a real story, by the way, that actually happened in 1996. Is it really? Yeah. I worked in a a 
a homeless outreach program in 1996. And that was a challenge that we faced. And that was huh. exactly how we, how we confronted it. That's very cool. I want to go back to the original conversation we were having about um, the fundraising landscape. You said there's a lot to be worried about. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. The, the IU Lilly Family School of Philanthropy does this study every two years, and they ask 10,000 households about their charitable giving. And it's the same 10,000 households. It's not just a random selection. It's called a panel study. So the same 10,000 households are asked every year. From 2000 to 2018, the percentage of households that are giving in any one year has steadily declined. Hmm. So it was nearly two-thirds. 65% in the year 2000, and it's down around 50% in 2018. This is scary. for, And this is not because it's across all income groups. It's across all education groups. It's across all professions. This is summarized in the nonprofit quarterly winter issue that just came out. I think they're calling it winter 2019. I got it in 2020, but winter 2019. Okay. And this is scary because philanthropy is a, a really important part of our society for a lot of reasons. Almost everybody's life is touched one way or another by philanthropy. All those groups that we talked about, higher ed, art museums, hospitals, WISE or other youth, other exercise, human development programs, et cetera, all those groups we talked about. And every single one of them needs money to operate. Philanthropy is at least 20% of the budget of the total nonprofit sector. And in some organizations, it's as much as 90% of the total budget. And when you're reducing the number of people who are even willing to give 25 bucks, that's the threshold in that study. They say, did you give $25 total to charity in the last year? Okay. So not and one $25 gift, but 25 no, total in a 12 total to, across. There's 11 different types of charities that they ask for okay. about. And if the people say, no, I didn't give $25 to, you know, all those different types of charities combined, then they don't count as a donor household. Okay. So, the, you, uh, you have been gracious enough to be interested in a study that I'm very interested in, which is trying to find out why mm-hmm. that has gone down. And, you know, there's a lot of hypotheses about why that is. One is that uh, we look to the ultra, ultra rich to pay for the services that benefit our local communities, even if there's no one of that income in our local community. Um, you know, Bill Gates is not going to give in Indianapolis. Right. Well, that's not true. He just did give in Indianapolis, <laughs> but he, he gave to homeless services, but he's not going to necessarily support um, sure. a bunch of other types of charities that are here. He, his wife, et cetera. But the, the responsibility that people feel to, to help support the charities in their neighborhood, is that being eroded because they think it's only the responsibility of the rich? Is that being eroded because they've had bad experiences with charities and they aren't sure if, they want to be evolved? We don't know. Is it because they're giving to support their immediate friends and relatives, like through crowdsource crowdfunding for hospital healthcare and that sort of thing? Are they worried about their own financial futures? And so saving up money, I, millennials are saving up more money than my generation did hmm. by a long shot um, because they're so worried about their retirement futures. So because they're saving it, maybe they're not giving it. So all these things are come into play and we're trying to suss that out. We're trying to organize a study to try to figure out what some of these differences might be that are coming in to help shape how people make charitable choices. Yeah, we're really excited about that study. I think, you know, it's one of those things where I I wouldn't say it's a silver bullet, but I sure would like more intelligence on, you know, what's motivating people to give and not to give because that can definitely, you know, for any organization, 
start to shape the way that they engage their community and, and hopefully reach out to more people and incentivize more people to give by, um, by addressing what those concerns are and how they might overcome those, don't you think? I do think. And in fact, in doing the literature review for this, uh, trying to craft the questions for the study, I came upon an interesting one today. And I think you and your listeners will find this interesting. When you're writing to people of wealth, they are, and it doesn't define wealth in the study that I saw, but we could probably come up with a pretty close definition. When you're writing to people of wealth, they are moved by statements that their giving will make a difference by agency, by having the power to influence the world for good for somebody else. When you're writing to people who have less wealth, they're moved by statements of communal benefit, standing together. Your gift along with others will enrich your community. Is really focusing on the commutarian, if you will, and I mean, hmm. benefits that somebody derives from being part of a solution, not the individual benefits of being uh, empowered to bring about a difference. I, I can't put that in the study because we're not actually asking, you know, respond to this letter versus, although we could, sure. now that I think about it, we could. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's a, as I thought it was a deep insight, and this is validated, it's done by a field study. So they okay. had a bunch of people who, fit a definition of wealth and a bunch of people who didn't and they randomized the letters and figured out what the response rate was and the people of wealth responded more frequently to the letters about their capacity to influence the world for good and the people of lower wealth said the bandy together of the formation of brotherhood solidarity you know we're all in this together and can get through this together kind of message was the important one that's really interesting to me yeah, well, I'll send you the study later, and I'll, I, I'll even reference it. So if you want to link it with you, for your listeners, you can do that. <laughs> I'd love to link it. Yes, please. That'd be great. I want to pivot a little bit and, and get your input on what you think some of the most, you know, in your work and the, the, all the organizations that you get a chance to sort of look behind the curtain on. What do you see are the common things that some of the most successful nonprofit organizations are doing that others might be missing? Okay. Well, interestingly, I, I'm going to tease a little bit about a study that um, okay. is coming out. It's the Major Gift Benchmark Study. Um, it's being released in the next few weeks by a consortium of um, technology firms, Market Smart, Donor Search, and some okay. others. And we we asked what helps nonprofits meet their major gift goals. And amazingly enough, having people who can focus on fundraising, 60% or more of their time was a key factor. Hmm. Now, you know, that's not a surprise. <laughs> but, no. <laughs> <laughs> but we hear over and over, especially in the smaller organizations, that people wear so many hats and they don't have enough time to do everything. So we asked these people in the, this research project, there's about 700 who responded, um, how many people are involved in major gifts? And we asked what roles they have. Are they volunteers, board members, CEO, fundraising executive, et cetera? And it didn't matter what role people had, volunteer, board member, paid staff. Okay. If there were three or more people involved in the major gift process, that organization was more likely to meet its fundraising goals. Hmm. Now, I don't want to give away all the findings, but those are two that I see as very important for organizations to be successful at fundraising. Actually having at least one person who can devote 60% or more of their time to fundraising and engaging at least three people in the process of cultivating, stewarding, asking for 
what a major gift, which, you know, might be the thousand dollars that you mentioned. Sure. Sure. And some organizations and might be 500. Who knows? It might be 500. It might be 5,000, whatever it is for that group. Okay. Um, having, having somebody who can actually focus on fundraising enough that it's at least 60% of their time. What's well, interesting to me, that one, I agree with you. Like it's an, it feels like a no brainer, right? It is a no brainer. I'm a little more surprised by the idea that having at least three people focused on and sort well, of sharing the responsibility. Sharing right? the responsibility. And I think that's divvying up the work, getting different yep. perspectives, having a different, we did not ask this. This is Melissa's speculation that sure. why that matters. Um, it, not everybody's the, got a, has a good rapport with every donor. So you have different people who can uh, develop a rapport with different donors. I think that helps. And time, just time. Yeah. Um, splitting it up, um, splitting three people up so that they, each one of them is doing some of it is sometimes easier. Well, and, and this is just an Andrew speculation. So take that for what it's worth. But I also wonder if there's not a part of this that's, you know, when, when you get lower than that, whether it's two or, or one, is there an isolation factor? There that, could be. That causes yeah. people to not, you'd be able to be as effective, you know, in their role. So again, sure. total speculation, but I'd be curious about that, you know? Yeah. We did look at, at whether it was a budget issue Okay. and it didn't, it was, I mean, in general, smaller organizations are less likely to meet fundraising goals. That's why they're small, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> but when they had three or more then they were more likely in within their, that size cohort okay. um, than if they had had fewer. So, and then most cases, those didn't include some volunteers, of course. So, uh, you know, those are two, th those kinds of things are working in organizations. We hear over and over about storytelling. Mm -hmm. I don't study storytelling, but I, I have seen it reported enough. And I know in the uh, material, I read all the direct mail that I get because I use that as a, a database, essentially, sure. for <laughs> what's working in direct mail. I never know if I'm getting the control or the, <laughs> or the test, but, but I'm looking to see what's, what's uh, coming across uh, and to see what's out there. Well, um, I might have to seed you on some lists so that you can start to see go. both, both the controls and the tests. <laughs> there you go. I'd love that. I'd love it. Um, so, um, but, uh, you know, storytelling is really important, but it doesn't necessarily have to be an individual. It can be the heroic story of the organization's mission. Hmm. Tell so us I've more seen, about that. Sure. So one of my friends is, uh, I can't remember his title, but he works for an organization called Water for Good. Okay. And they are engaged in drilling wells in the Central African Republic, water wells. Okay. Not oil, water. The, there's a founder, a very motivated, charismatic founder. The circumstances in which they drill these wells is, are, can be deeply disturbing. I mean, trucks mired in mud that have to, have to be pushed out by, you know, gangs of guys just slogging through the mud to get the, the truck out of the rut. Okay. Um, then they drill the well and uh, in the community, the village, and it's the first time there's been clean, fresh water. People don't have to lug the heavy water jugs, however many miles it is, to the nearest not necessarily clean water source, the uh, stream or whatever. And then maintaining the well becomes the responsibility of the people in the community. And so then there's trouble with parts and so forth. So they tell the story of those journeys to get those wells dug in a tremendously powerful way. You feel like you're there. You can see the videos, you can hear the voices, you can, you know, and you don't quite feel the mud, but nearly. 
So it's not one person saying, or one even one village saying, hey, we have water, you know, all of a sudden we don't have these parasites and, you know, we, our kids can focus on school because they don't have to walk to the, to the flowing river where the water comes from. But it's the, it's the story of the founding and the persistence over tremendous odds hmm. to have clean water uh, provided in these communities. Not to mention the Central African Republic has uh, been going through a civil war for I can't remember how many years. So there's not even the armed conflict going on around. There's just this, the forces of nature that can cause problems. So that's sort of the heroic story that they tell. Okay. That's not about a child or in a family. Right. It sort of breaks the, the traditional mold of, you know, telling the story of one, if you will. Yes, you know, and, and exactly. focusing on a child. And if you could put a puppy in the story, even better, right? Even better, right? <laughs> Anything with large eyes. That's, yes, that's pretty yes. much how it works. <laughs> I've wondered about frogs and, and goldfish, but I don't know if those huh. are insight saying that there's something about uh, human response to large eyes because it's associated with vulnerability and, and uh, puppies and children. So Yeah, I'd never thought about frogs and goldfish, but... Uh, it depends upon if you're working for the, you know... Forest Conservancy or right, um, right. Humane Society. So. We've got a few clients. We, we might be able to test that. Yeah. <laughs> Send me the control and the test. Let me right. know. <laughs> so I want to I pivot us and spend some time talking about the upcoming, I say upcoming, we're already knee deep in it, the election season, right? Uh, so yes. I probably at least once a week I get the question, What's the impact of the election season going to be on philanthropy? Oh, and I, I hear and see some organizations saying, well, we've studied this and uh, it doesn't impact giving at all. And if you look at giving over time, people who give to political causes actually give more to charity than not. But I feel like that's sort of a brush off. And I'd love to hear your perspective on if and how you think uh, philanthropy might be impacted by the election season and just sort of what your thinking is on this topic. Okay. So there, this has, again, uh, it's like why giving, why do people give it all? It has multiple elements at play all at once. So I'll try to organize my thoughts a little bit. Back when I edited Giving USA, I began in 2001. So we went through a couple of elections in the 10 years I was there. And we did what's called a regression analysis. It doesn't matter for most of your listeners what that is, but we looked to see what the drivers were of charitable giving in the United States. And guess what? Personal income and the stock market, how the stock market performs and changes in tax rates, all those things that you would predict are drivers of charitable giving. Absolutely. People have to have money to give. If the tax rate changes, then at least in the near term, they change their giving in response to the tax rate. And the, um, if people feel like their assets are appreciating, they're more likely to give than they feel than they will if they feel like they're depreciating. Okay. Straightforward stuff. So we did some tests and we put we put in there um, the election years and we we went way back in time because we the Giving USA has data going back to 1956. And okay. so for all all those years for elections, it made no difference at least through 2008, which was the last year that I was working on Giving USA when there was an election. There was no difference in the total charitable amount that was given based on whether there was an election that year or not. Hmm. We, could ver- we could verify this in tax returns because at that time, in 2000, even as in 2008, people could claim deductions still. It was really tied to income, stock market changes, and tax law changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were the three factors. Leaving the election in or taking it out did not change. Hmm. It made no difference. Okay. However... 
life has changed since 2008. And um, a study that I did um, in 2016 found that mid-year, that is the first half of 2016, giving was down in there were about a thousand respondents um, to this particular study. We asked charitable organizations whether their giving was up or down in 2016 compared to 2015. And more than 50% of the organizations said their giving was down. And some of them said it was the election. I cannot prove it was the election. I can only say that the election was, as you said, midway. We were underway in the first half of 2016. So there was a concern that particular year about the election, as you have heard uh, probably this year. In the intervening four years, I've talked with many people, and as have you, and what I hear is that some major donors, in particular, those ones who drive that 80% of the total, have chosen in 2016 and possibly this year as well to direct their money toward campaigns or referenda or ballot issues, depending upon what state they're in, that they care about. So there seems to be, it might not shift the total. Remember that total's really weighted by the Jeff Bezos and Bill and yeah. Melinda and all those people. It's so much weighted by them, but locally when there's a contentious campaign, whether it's for Congress or for a governor, possibly even for a mayor, when there's a referendum, when there's a really hot primary, imagine some of the early primary States in the democratic primaries and caucuses this year that might pull some major donors away from their quote typical and quote annual gift for charities in this particular year. Okay. That makes sense. We don't have evidence of that yet, but we do know that people who are politically engaged are often philanthropically engaged and the reverse people who are (laughs) philanthropically engaged are also politically engaged and it would be highly probable to me (laughs) that they would choose to make an impact on society through political giving this year rather than through charitable giving, especially since the deduction for many of us is gone. So, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and I, and this is sort of quasi political, but I, I know that in the last midterm, you know, we did hear a lot, again, I don't have data to support it, but a lot of anecdotal conversation about, you know, the fact that donors, donors who might otherwise have given to three or four organizations cut that to say two, and they focused on environmental causes, on advocacy organizations like supporting the ACLU or supporting an organization maybe that was doing uh, crisis intervention work on the border for, you know, people who were were trying to to come to the U.S. Refugees or immigrants. Yeah, things like that, or uh, or Planned Parenthood, right? Mm -hmm. And I I suspect on the more right-leaning side of the aisle, there were probably other corollaries where people were saying, well, you know, if, if that's happening, I need to put my money into whatever those causes are too. Right. <clears throat> so it will be interesting as we go through the rest of this cycle to see whether that bears out or not. It's, it's really interesting to me that, you know, for, for more than 50 years of data, you saw relatively no change and that it was tied to personal income, the stock market, and, and tax rates. And I guess, you know, on the stock market piece, that's one area where, you know, a campaign cycle could cause volatility, right? Mm-hmm, and, sure. And we could see, you know, we have already. Dips. Right, in, in, right. In this, in this particular year, yeah. Well, and, and uh, I think it was the midterm uh, last cycle when we saw when the government shutdown happened, right? 
exactly. The 2018, wow. we had the shutdown. We had, we had a steep decline in the stock market at the end of 2018. And so, it, it sure looks to me in the data that I've seen recently that year-end 2019 looked a whole heck of a lot better than year-end 2018. It did. Right? Yeah. And, and I think, based on what you've said, uh, it makes a lot more sense that that was driven by sort of relative comfort with stock market numbers in 19 mm-hmm. compared to 18 versus anything else. That seems to be the most logical. Uh, right. And it, volatility does matter to people, for sure. The Anything that's uncertain, economic mm-hmm. uncertainty, stock market uncertainty, people's own income, whether they feel like they're layoffs in their particular community. Mm-hmm. Um, I was recently in a situation where I was talking with a lot of people from Wichita, Kansas. Okay. And in that particular community, there have been a lot of layoffs related to the aerospace industry. Okay. And I expect that they will see a decline in giving there, even if the rest of the country is not experiencing that kind of kind of shift, very local economic shift. Okay. So those so, things also play a role. Let me ask you this then. What, if anything, can an organization do? Let's say there's a nonprofit in Wichita, Kansas. I don't know that they listen, but let's say that somebody's listening from Wichita and, and, and they're faced with this idea that, okay, the rest of the year maybe is going to be a lot worse because of this concern. How does an organization like that or a person in that seat, how do they offset these kind of, you know, sort of uncontrollable market factors? What are the things that they can be doing to try to, to stave off the loss that they might see? They have to be very consistent on message and communications about the difference a gift makes Hmm. a $5 cup of coffee. If you do not, and I'll mention a specific organization, if you donate that to United Methodist Open Door in Kansas, you will be helping, I can't remember how many, 13,000 people a year hmm. who's, who go there for food, clothing, day services for people who are homeless. There's some other programs as well, some okay. transitional yeah. housing programs and that sort of thing. But you know, if you gave five bucks a week, $250 a year, roughly, you would make a huge difference. Hmm. If you gave even $5 a month, that $60 in a year would benefit more people than you could do, you know, than you just having coffee, clearly, um, than you could do with almost anything else. And there's numerous other organizations in Kansas. I just happen to know that particular one. (laughs) So being able to break down the benefit in small increments so that somebody who says, you know, it's really hard for me to give right now, but I can find five bucks. I can find five bucks in my sofa. (laughs) <laughs> my husband lies down there after busy days so i just clean out the couch <laughs> my daughters are always scrambling trying to find five bucks in the couch so yes yeah right sometimes it's in the laundry but the same idea um, so you know if the organization was able to that particular group happens to have a lot of volunteers if they asked every single volunteer if they asked had a special offering in every single methodist congregation in the community if they uh, made sure that they had maybe a PSA on the radio saying, here, $5, you can sign up here to give us $5 a month, go online. Um, online services are very low, low cost. They don't even have to send mail because mm-hmm. mail, you know, takes time and, and, and it's not cheap effort, and it's not cheap, <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> but they could, they could do, I mean, even with the volunteers, they already have their email addresses. Most of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to tell it in that case, I, I would tell a compelling story about an individual to allow people to see, feel, hear, touch the mission in some way. And um, not the heroic story of the, of the organization, but the, you know, a, a person whose life was transformed. Sure. But, yeah. That individual yeah. life change. 
Right. Absolutely. Through the power of $5 contributions at a time. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. All right. We're about out of time. Thank you so much for being here and sharing with me. If somebody listening wants to get in touch with you, wants to learn more about your research services or have a follow-up conversation about something you said, what's the best way for people to reach you? Oh man. Email all the way. Okay. And what is uh, that? my M S like Susan M S Brown LLC at att.net. And my website is the same msbrownllc.com. Melissa, thanks again for being here. Andrew, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.